to have been in that shepherd's field that night and to see the glory of God displayed by God's heavenly messengers and then to make that trip to the manger and to gaze upon the king of glory with our own eyes. Our Father and our God, you have brought us to a sense of awe this morning already through the proclamation of your truth in music, praise, prayer. And I pray, Father, this morning that you might captivate our hearts in a fresh way with a familiar story to most. But, oh God, the results of that story are never, ever familiar. They are new and fresh. Every morning, great is thy faithfulness to us who love you. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace on those upon whom his favor rests. Oh God, this morning we pray that you would laser our attention on the realities of your plan of salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as we consider rock-solid realities of Christmas, I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. As we explore and examine questions that surround Christmas, like was Jesus actually born on December 25th? And the answer is, what? (laughs) Most assuredly not. And of course, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have faced much criticism for celebrating Christmas because of the very day, December 25th, and what it historically, it's the historic roots of that particular reality. Polycarp, who was born in 66 AD, Polycarp of of Smyrna, uh, which is in modern Turkey, where, in fact, myrrh comes from, which is possible one of the wise men actually came from that part of the world. He declared that Jesus was probably born on a Wednesday. You ask, why a Wednesday? Because that's the day that the sun was created. On the fourth day, the sun was created. However, December 25th was... In the Roman world, a day that was celebrated, first of all, as a late solstice and also as a holiday or celebration to the pagan god Mithra that the Romans had adopted from the Persian world, who himself was allegedly born of a virgin in a cave. And so we get all kinds of confusion uh, surrounding the uh, issue of Christmas. But it, was, it wasn't until Constantine declared the Roman world Christian that, in fact, Christmas began because the early Christians didn't celebrate Christmas. 
In fact, we arrived at a Christmas consensus to celebrate when the Roman Empire became Christian and determined that the celebration of the false god Mithra should be replaced and redeemed by worship of Christ. And so it was that December 25th was chosen for that purpose, that very reason. And the very first Christmas that Christians actually celebrated was December 25th, 336 A.D. And we've been celebrating ever since. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church chose January 6th because they declared that not only was Christ born on January 6th, but he was baptized on January 6th as well. There is scant evidence that that is, in fact, true. But I think it's good what one ancient divine said at the time of the early choice to celebrate Christmas. He said this, we hold this day holy and are not like the pagans because of the birth of the sun, S-U-N, but because of him who made it. So I want to look in your Bibles at the text And let's dig out some realities that actually come from the scriptures this morning. We know it is highly unlikely, in fact, certainly virtually impossible that Christ was born on December 25th. But we need to be careful as well as we look at and and celebrate Christmas that we don't let, let the event become more important than who it honors. So let's take a fresh look this morning at the biblical, biblical focus and factors that played into this great event. And I want to look at five rock-solid realities this morning. And I, I would just say to you that I celebrate Christmas because God most certainly did. It was the event in human history that God lit up the skies with angels. If that's not a celebration, then I don't know what it is. So I think it's highly appropriate. In fact, although we're not commanded in Scripture to celebrate Christmas, I think Christians should celebrate Christmas with great vigor and great enthusiasm because our Heavenly Father celebrated that first Christmas with all the pomp and splendor and glory of His glory that that shone in the the heavens and the skies. In those days... Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I may break into King James language now. And there were shepherds abiding in the fields keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. 
But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And the angels had left them and gone into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of God. Well, it appears pretty obvious that the first reality as we look at the text is that God moved heaven and earth to have Jesus born in Bethlehem. And I would submit to you, therefore, it is not too hard for him who did that to have Jesus born in your heart or the hearts of your family and friends. You know, God's prophetic word had declared that the Messiah, the promised one, would come from Bethlehem. In fact, when Herod had heard of this special birth, he gathered around himself the chief priests and teachers of the law and asked them the question in the, in the book of Matthew, where is the Messiah to be born? And they declared to him that he was to be born in Bethlehem. One problem... Mary was pregnant and in Nazareth. How in the world would God ever get Mary to Bethlehem in time for her delivery? Is this too hard for God? Whatever would God do? Because we have on the throne uh, the most powerful man in the Roman Empire, <coughs> excuse me, Caesar Augustus. And so it just so happened that this powerful man declares a convenient, coincidental decree that the world should be, uh, that, the, that the Roman world should come under census, evidently that they might be taxed. And no doubt it was Herod's idea, because when Romans, when Romans did a census, they did not require uh, people to return to their, their uh, ancestral homes. It was likely Herod's PR work that suggested to Caesar Augustus that if you want to keep the people somewhat happy, you need to declare this somewhat of a, an adventure to their ancestral home. So require of them to, to go to their ancestral homes, and in that way they will somewhat enjoy the pilgrimage, and they will go for the census, and uh, no harm, no foul. So here we have Joseph heading off from Nazareth to, to, to Bethlehem, to do as was required to go to his ancestral home and thereby register him and his family. There was no requirement, by the way, for Mary to go, but it is highly probable that the choice he made was to take Mary so that she would be with him when she gave birth. 
And secondly, it's unlikely that he wanted to leave her in Nazareth and face the scandal of the birth of this child before Chupa, as you heard last week, before their, the consummation of their marriage. So we have this troop that moves, and, and then we have the declaration by Luke, who, by the way, is also the one who records for us the book of Acts. And Luke talks here about a census at the time, the first census, he calls it, took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Historians and others will argue with us that, therefore, the Bible is flawed because Quirinius was actually governor in Judea in 6 to 7 AD. But if you, um, if you understand that the, the, the biblical text uh, gives us a, a description of a census that took place by the same author of, the, of, of Luke, Luke himself, who in Acts chapter 5 and verse 37 talks about a census... And in that census, he says here um, uh, that after him, he's, he's talking here about um, Gamaliel, the, the Pharisee, was, was stood up because the disciples were spreading the gospel and said, look, at this whole thing will we'll pass on, uh, just relax, it'll go away. And he's recording times in history where things had happened and it all came to naught. And, and Luke records in Acts 537. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. Now, we have help in that the historian Josephus insists that this particular census at the time of Judas the Galilean was 6 AD. Not the Judas we know who betrayed Christ, but another Judas. It was a common name. That census. We also know historically that King Herod died in 4 BC. So he died before this census, which was in 6 AD. So that can't be the census that Luke is talking about here at the time of Christ's birth. In fact, the census that the Romans had uh, was generally every 14 years. If you back it up 14 years from 6 AD, you come to about 8 BC. Now, Quirinius was in fact a high official overseeing Judea between the time of 10 and 7 BC. So it is highly likely that Jesus was in fact born between 6 and 8 BC and likely closer to 8 BC. So this is the census that he's talking about here. His history bears out that this in fact took place. He, that's why he calls it and clarifies it here, the first census, as opposed to the census later in 6 AD. So, in fact, your, our calendars are wrong because the early Christians did not celebrate the birth of Christ. So when the calendar was put together, we're about eight years off of when Christ was really born. There were no physical advantages needed by God. We know this. God is the one who created all things. And as you look at this story, almost nothing seems to make sense. It seems like very bad planning, in fact. It's inconvenient. It's a struggle. It actually mirrors, for the most part, our lives. Regularly, nothing seems to make sense that God is planning to do in our lives. And yet God's handiwork is all over them. This Everything is working just as God planned. 
And then you have an angel appear in the skies over shepherds. God chooses to interface heaven with the ordinary. It can't get more ordinary. You've got the spectacular angels appearing. And the common shepherds, this heaven-earth interface of ordinary, just like you and me. Agents of, the, of heaven's happenings pull back the curtain of reality in this unusual display of the heavenlies in this text. And what is it that they declare? This second amazing reality is that Christ is God's good news of great joy to the world. Look at verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And by the way, two Two of these phrases which leap out at us with such great meaning, to them had become common and ordinary. And those two phrases are good news and Savior. That's the big deal for us in Christian theology. The gospel and Savior. But to this audience, every time there was a new leader who was announced, it was announced as We bring you good news. Caesar Augustus is now reigning over the Roman Empire. And you say, well, what about the word Savior? Savior was used all over the place. Caesar Augustus was called Savior. A doctor would be called Savior. Um, There there was a number of of any rulers or philosophers were called Savior at that time. But if you notice that the angel announcement defines a particular kind of Savior. Notice, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, Messiah, anointed one, Lord. Now, wait a second. That's that's not the normal introduction of Saviors at that particular time. This is a complete contrast in terms of good news announcements. We have the good news announcement of Caesar Augustus, but no angel fanfare. And as as one called Savior, he certainly didn't bring salvation to the people of Judea. So Savior Caesar at best could decree a census, but Savior Jesus would decree salvation. And so this is a complete contrast from from everything they had heard before. So not only Savior, but Christ and Lord. uh, Savior has already been defined by his name. In Matthew 1.21, when Joseph was being assured to go along with this, this is God's plan. Don't fear this, Joseph. He said, you'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. That's what Savior, this Savior would do, save people from their sins. And and the emphasis, of course, on Jesus' name and that he would save them from their sins is he himself, the emphasis in the original language is he himself will save people from their sins. He is the great Savior and from God's wrath upon unforgiven sinners, presently and future. That's why Paul could write to the Romans in Romans 8.1. Now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But unless you are in Christ Jesus, you are still under the condemnation of God. 
This is what Christ came to save us from. This other word, Messiah, which is really anointed one, is not used very often in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, Psalm 2.2 is one of the rare uses of it. In Psalm 2.2, it talks about the, 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 the eternal king, God's eternal king, and the anointing of God's eternal king. The anointed one was, was the king of the Davidic line. That's the language that was used uh, uh, to, to um, coronate that one who would be chosen by God to be his king over his people. And so the, we're narrowing down the definition here. We're, we're narrowing down who this Savior really is. He is that promised one who would be the eternal king of the Davidic line. That's why they go to the city of David. And then Lord. His authority and his power would yet be demonstrated to overcome sin and evil and death. In this, the song of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, 77 to 79, he sings this song to give his people, referring to John the Baptist, but the, the essence of the Savior, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. So it is Christ, the Lord, the Savior. There's a third reality I'd like to look at this morning with you for a moment, and it's found in verses 12 and 16. In verses 12 and 16, and also, of course, back in 7, there's an emphasis on manger. God did not choose a privileged life for the incarnation. I think you'll all agree with me that it's highly, highly unusual for a high-ranking king to be born in an animal feeding trough. So what is God up to? I believe there's a number of things that God is up to, but of course, he didn't choose a privileged life for the incarnation. He purposed the opposite, that the son might experience the hardships of living in this broken world. We can never shake our fists heavenward and say to God, you don't, but you don't understand, but you don't know what I'm going through. You've never experienced what I am having to endure. And that's the very purpose of the incarnation, that God might come to this world and live out life as a human and experience the pains and the agony and the hurts, the rejections, the betrayals, just like us. The theme and the script that God stays with throughout all of the scriptures and the record of his people is lowly and humble and needy and dependent. That's who we are. In fact, don't ever be misled by the look of the landscape, particularly in this story or any other story that God is overseeing. In a manger, in obscurity, in apparent poverty, rejection. Imagine a God 
like this, who purposely restrains from doing what he could do for greater purposes. It is highly likely that the choice of the manger has everything to do with Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, of course, the prophet Isaiah comes out of the gate calling out Israel, calling out God's people <clears throat> for their abject rejection of God. And there's this powerful verse. So verse 2 says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. Now listen, the ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. I am firmly convinced that God displayed his rejected son in a manger to powerfully illustrate this Old Testament complaint by God all over again. Even the animals know where to go home. Even the animals know where to find food. And my people who I reared, my own children, don't know where to go for food, and don't know how to find home. And their dazzling glory is the Son of God reminding them of the rebellion and the rejection. Manger three times emphasizes a big, big deal to me. It has to be more than just a lowly, poverty-feeding-trough place. It has to be a powerful image. And I'm also, as, I, as I've studied this whole event of the angels going to the shepherds, and this sign of wrapped in swaddling clothes, or wrapped in claws, and lying in a manger. Now, I think there's something here for everybody. I think the, the manger scene was mostly for the priests and the teachers of the law and the scribes, that their conscience might be pricked, who knew full well Isaiah and all that's written in Isaiah. But I think this sign of the wrapped cloths was for the shepherds, because um, as I said, it's, it's virtually impossible that that, that this Christmas event was December 25th. In fact, it's most likely that it was in the spring, closer to Passover. Because you've got a bunch of shepherds employed in the fields of Bethlehem, which is adjacent to Jerusalem. It's like Oshawa's Curtis, only the wrong geographic side. Bethlehem's on the west side of Jerusalem. But you've got these shepherds in the shepherd's fields, tending the temple sheep, the sheep that would give birth to the lambs that would be used for sacrifice. And, and those lambs, by the way, had to be 
spotless, perfect, without blemish. And those shepherds who would be tending, particularly temple shepherds, who would be tending to these sheep would wrap their limbs upon birth that no defect might occur. And now you've got, it was nothing unusual for a child to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's what they did to protect their arms from being deformed. But the picture is so powerful of the manger of rejection of God's people and the wrapped Savior that he might be God's lamb without defect or without blemish. The shepherds knew full well they were being called to go and look at God's lamb lying in a manger. The manger description for them was, there were probably many children who were wrapped in swaddling clothes that night in Bethlehem, but only one was lying in a manger, and that's the one you've got to go find. And so they did. This powerful, powerful lesson for the shepherds, a foreshadow of God's lamb. Go find him. He's in a feeding trough, bound for slaughter. As John later records in Revelation 13, verse 8, the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, laid in a manger, an animal feeding trough, Oh, hear, O Israel. Ox, where to find food. And donkeys, know their master's manger. But you have rebelled against me, the one who loved you and is now giving you his son for sacrifice. And with that, the angels, it says, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Christ is for all the people, anybody, and ordinary bodies like you and like me, but not everybody. See, um, the emphasis here is this is the best news of all. It's arrived to the earth. It's available, but not automatically. The language that's used here, glory to God, peace to those on whom his favor rests, is a particular wording. Many of us have been sort of polluted by a poor translation, goodwill toward all men. That's not how it's properly interpreted or translated. In fact, the best is best translation is peace to those with whom or of whom his upon whom his good pleasure rests that's the best translation the emphasis is this that the ordinary qualify but it is god who initiates our salvation it is God who reaches out and chooses those upon whom his favor rests, his good pleasure rests. The healing of estrangement between God and mankind is brought by God because of sin. 
And the grace, what, what happens here? The grace to give glory. The angels proclaim glory. The, the shepherds follow in their, in their footsteps in verse 20. The shepherds return, glorifying and praising God. And like the shepherds, watch this. God will guide who he calls to himself. In a very loose, a very loose uh, uh, interpretation or translation of a great Spurgeon statement was this, that proclaim Jesus because like a magnet, he will draw to himself those who belong to himself. That's what our proclamation does. That's what our praise does. And, 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 and so they, the shepherds followed in, 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 the, in the, uh, the, the uh, example of the angels. And finally, the fifth... Um, reality that, that strikes me from this text is what God declares he keeps. Go and see if it isn't so. The angels say, go, go to, the, go to the manger, go find and see if what God says isn't so. And they say to each other, let's go and let's see this thing that God has declared. And I want you to watch something here. Praise both precedes openness to God's invitation and is the response to it. I think this is fascinating and quite important for us as we gather together and celebrate our Lord and Savior on a given Sunday morning. It was this great praise event that took place with the angels and the shepherds and it motivated them and moved them to obedience, to go and, and seek out Christ. And then the results of, of, of encountering Christ led them to praise him. It's a, it's a bracket. Praise is an, a, a tremendous parenthesis to the reality of Christ. And so it is for us. When we gather here on a given Sunday morning and praise the Lord with our singing and lift up our voices in great music, it is both proper and a great proclamation to God and a testimony from our hearts, but it is also a catalyst to, to, to stir up obedience in our lives, to go and see if what God declares isn't so. And then having encountered him afresh in the experience of our worship, then we find in him more reason to praise and proclaim him. That's what happens here in this text. It can't contain the good news. God performs his word and fulfills his promises and that's great news for us because we're waiting for something. We sung about it this morning. We sung about the king who is yet to come again for us. We're, we're calling out on him to fulfill that promise. And the good news for us is this, that, the, that God has fulfilled all of his promises at, that down through the ages and, and the ones that he has yet not fulfilled will be fulfilled. The Savior will come for us. And now, of course, we need to understand that this babe who was laid in a manger, looking helpless and wrapped by humans in swaddling clothes, wrapping his limbs so they wouldn't be defective, is the ultimate fulfillment of what Paul said in Philippians 2, that, that he became a servant of man, and call the kenosis of Christ, and he's in the hands of man. But make no mistake about it, that one, the Savior, the Messiah, 
that same Lord now sits enthroned over every excuse we make. Luke chapter 22, verse 69. When I think about that first night and that first declaration of a Savior, go and find him. And I think about all of the excuses that shepherds could have made for not going. Those same excuses, by the way, that are handed down through the ages. Too busy. Too distracted. Too tired. Too self-sufficient. Too selfish. Too independent. Too married to my own way of thinking. That same Messiah, our Messiah, sits enthroned over all of these excuses, over all of your excuses. Don't make the mistake of underestimating the message of today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Don't let Christmas bypass you in some sort of idea of a peaceful, restful manger on some silent night because it was anything but silent. All of heaven was screaming out the good news that people can be right with God. And God has, has done everything possible to make that available to you. And he takes notice. He takes notice of those who wish to be included versus those who would rather pass. Which one are you? Peace and eternal life are only divinely scheduled for those on whom his good pleasure rests. Those who are grateful for the grace of God. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the offer of salvation is available to you this morning. But maybe you know the Lord Jesus, but you're just feeling stale. This has been a year where you have just sort of bottomed out in your walk with God. It doesn't feel fresh. There seems to be distance between you and the Lord. You're holding back on your praise. When you hear of this great, spectacular praise of, of the angels, you're, it, it almost feels contemptuous to you. Because you're not feeling that. I would urge you to do a couple of things, not the least of which. In a few moments, we're going to praise God all over again in music and song. Praise Him with all of your heart. Force yourself to praise Him. Because praise is the parentheses of obedience and proclamation and excitement and enthusiasm, joy and obedience. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Don't hold back. Your salvation has come.
Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the realities of this amazing event, the incarnation. God, the Son, comes to dwell among us, to be born, to die, to be our Savior, to rescue us from our sins, to reconcile us to God, people estranged, people who don't know where to find the food, people who don't know the way home. Even the animals know this, but we don't know our master. And so, our Father, we pray this morning for those whose hearts you are drawing like a magnet because they belong to you. And I pray for those, O God, who've allowed their hearts to become stale. I pray, O Lord, as we lift up our voices and praise you with, with, with the angels who will join with us this morning because they long to look at these things and participate in them. I pray, O God, that our hearts will turn to you. And like the shepherds of old, we will leave this place this morning rejoicing because we have listened to God's word And we have found it to be so, and our hearts are stirred afresh to the truth that man can be right with God forever. Oh, Lord, thank you for your salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name, and for his sake, amen. As I was coming to church this morning, driving south on Wilson Street, it was a beautiful portrayal of the Christ who came As the sun peeked over the horizon this morning, this beautiful ball of orange and pink. And the scriptures regularly describe the sun of righteousness, S-U-N of righteousness, Malachi chapter 4. In reference to Messiah, Zachariah's song, he says that to those living in darkness, a great light has shone as he gives echoes of Isaiah. For those of you who've been called upon to sit in a night vigil sometime for a a sick family member, or maybe you've been sick yourself, and, and the hours of the night seem to take forever. But when the sun comes, everything seems to change, and the daylight lights up that gloom and that murkiness, darkness. When that babe was placed in that manger and the skies lit up, it was God's declaration, his celebration to the world, the sun of righteousness has shone upon us and the darkness is chased away. Oh, beloved ones. Welcome the Son of Righteousness into your heart and your life. And fathers and mothers, call on your children. Let's go. Let's go to Christ. Let's go see what Christ, what God has done in Christ Jesus. As families, go to Christ. Experience all he has for you this Christmas season. Proclaim him everywhere, for he is great and greatly to be praised.
If you don't know the Lord, but this morning God is pulling on your heart, please speak to one of us here at the front of the, the church here after the service. Or go and meet us in the connections room. We'd love to talk to you about the things of God. Or if we can pray with you after the service, please, please come and let us pray with you. Let us bring glory to God as his people, shall we, this Christmas season. We pray. Oh, God, we praise you. We thank you. We love you. We thank you for your salvation and your great love for us. The sun of righteousness has dawned and has chased the darkness and gloom away so that we can be right with God. We thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.